Hello and welcome to another edition of EdChoice Chats. I'm Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our state policy series. Today we're going to be focused on Florida, and I'm delighted to be joined by Doug Tuthill, President of Step Up for Students, which is the largest scholarship organization in the country. Doug, great to have you. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. So before we get into the tax credit scholarship program that Step Up for Students participates in, let's talk a little bit about the history of school choice in Florida, starting with the Jeb Bush administration. What was the program that he championed and what happened to it? Yeah, governor Bush passed a program in his first year as governor, and it was designed to help kids get out of low-performing schools, district schools. And they could have two options. They could either go to a private school and basically with a voucher, or they could attend another public school that was higher rated. And so that was really the first sort of modern choice program that included a choice outside of the school district. We had magnet schools, you know, before that, and we had some within district choice, uh, but this was the first program that included a private school option. That program, though, was very quickly subject to a legal challenge. It was. The teachers union filed suit uh, virtually the day it became authorized, and uh, it was in litigation all the way through 2006. Uh, it finally was ruled unconstitutional by the Florida Supreme Court. They ruled the private school piece unconstitutional. It turns out that the public school piece is still in place. So uh, to this day, you can still transfer from a F-rated uh, school in Florida to another public school under the, under the original program. But the private school component of it was ruled unconstitutional very controversial decision. Controversial and also different than many of the other states, right? So most of the school choice lawsuits have focused on the Blaine Amendment, which a lot of states have, which which says that public funds cannot go to religious schools. And actually, in most cases, they find that uh, state Supreme Courts find that because the funds are flowing to the students and not directly to the schools, that there's no Blaine Amendment issue. But in Florida, it was challenged under the uniformity clause. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting. As the case went from the trial to the appellate, it was primarily focused on blame. But before it got to the Florida Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on the Zellman case out of Ohio. And so I think that caused the Florida Supreme Court to pause and get concerned about whether the blame uh, challenge was going to be legally defensible. Right, because in in Zellman, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that there was no First Amendment issue precisely for the reason I mentioned earlier, that the, exactly. the funds are going to the students. Exactly. And the students, exactly. the families can choose from a wide variety of religious or secular options. So right. there's there's no establishment of a particular religion. There's no support to one particular religion. Uh, these organizations, religious or not, all have uh, an equal ability to attract students and therefore attract the dollars that the families are using. Right. Very well said, sir. And uh, so the Florida Supreme Court uh, looked around and found this uniformity clause and decided they would use that as their rationale to strike down the private school piece of the program. Basically, they said, what you're doing is you're identifying failing schools and your remedy is to allow these kids to go to private schools that's not an appropriate remedy under the Florida Constitution. 
if the schools are underperforming, you need to fix those schools, not necessarily create a separate program. The problem with that rationale is there's nothing in the Florida Constitution that prohibits a program that allow kids to take public funds to go to private schools. And there's nothing in the uniformity clause that would prohibit that. So that was sort of, you know how courts are, Jason, they oftentimes are very political. And this was a fairly political decision, but we've had to live with it you know, for the last 12 years now. So the, the uniformity clause says that Florida must run a uniform system of free public schools. And the way the court interpreted it in the Bush v. Holmes decision was that uniform pertained not only to those schools, but that it, it uniform also meant exclusive, that it could not run a second separate system, that it, everything had to be in that public school system and the government couldn't operate anything outside of it. Right. Whereas other states have actually interpreted the uniformity clause in their own state constitutions to mean that this is a bare minimum. You must at the very least do this, but you may do other things in addition to this. Yeah, no other court in the country has followed the same logic of the Florida court. It's been an outlier and it's based on, like you said, some some legal rationale, which was pretty much created out of whole cloth by the Florida Supreme Court. And I know that there are still some pending lawsuits, which we'll get to later in the podcast. We'll have an opportunity to revisit the state of jurisprudence regarding the uniformity clause and which direction that might go, particularly after the last election. But let's talk first about another program that was enacted around the same time in 1999, and that's Florida's John McKay Scholarship for Students with Disabilities. So what is that? How does that work? Yeah, that's a program for kids with learning disabilities, uh, maybe some discipline, emotional issues, and they can get a voucher, a publicly funded voucher that would allow them to attend a private school. Interestingly enough, when the Florida Supreme Court ruled the original Bush program unconstitutional, they included a footnote to say that this logic doesn't apply to the McKay program, basically. (laughs) Which is, again, there's no rational reason you would do that. That's simply a political decision because the special needs McKay program is fairly bipartisan and and, and popular. And the Bush program was very partisan and unpopular with the Democrats. And so the court, you know, uh, because the McKay program was so popular in a bipartisan way, they sort of carved out an exemption for that particular program. Anyway, that program today serves about 30,000 kids. And they are attending private schools across the state of Florida, and it's a very successful program. It's very popular with families that have kids whose needs fit the criteria of the program. And it's seen a tremendous amount of growth. In the first year, there were only two students participating. By 2001, you had just short of 1,000. And now, as you mentioned, more than 30,000 students receiving scholarships that are on average about $7,000 to attend the school of their choice. But the largest school choice program in the country is the one that basically your organization runs. Step Up for Students provides more than 99% of the scholarships under the uh, Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program. So what is this program and how does it work? Well, it was passed in 2001 and we started enrolling the first kids in 2002. The way it works is that corporations in Florida that have a tax liability and there are various categories of taxes that are covered by this. 
alcohol, excise tax, insurance premium tax, corporate income tax, oil and gas tax, a couple of others. And many of these taxes were added later. I should say that the credits on those taxes were added over the years since 2001 when it was originally passed. Yeah, we believe in continuous improvement. And every year we evaluate what's working and what's not working, what our improvement opportunities are. And over the years, as the program has grown, we had to expand the tax credit opportunities to allow us to continue to grow and and to fund demand. So uh, a corporation that, that, let's say, um, I'm an alcohol distributor, and I owe $5 million in alcohol excise tax. I can get a dollar-for-dollar tax credit from the state by donating to a qualified nonprofit. Step Up, as you said, uh, is the largest one in the country by far. And so let's suppose that company then donates $5 million to us. That would be $5 million credit that they would get so they wouldn't have to pay that $5 million in excise tax to the state. So there's no savings to the corporation. It's just a pass-through. that They collect the tax dollars and they owe the state. And instead of just paying the state, they pay us. And then families apply to us. It's a means-tested program. The average family of four makes $25,000 a year. About almost 80% are minority, either Hispanic or Black. And they can take these scholarships to any one of almost 2,000 qualified schools in the state of Florida. So this year, We've got about 100,000 kids on scholarship, and it's very popular. We had almost 15,000 kids on a waiting list, on an approved waiting list. That was kids who had applied for the scholarship. We had evaluated their application. We had approved them, but we didn't have money to fund them, so we put them on a waiting list. We also had another 70,000 families who started an application, but we wouldn't let them finish the application because there was no opportunity for them to be funded. There was no chance. And we actually turned off the online application in late June and had 170,000 applications started in the system. So that gives you an indication that while we're proud of the fact that we're serving 100,000 kids, I'm pretty confident that if we had enough resources, we could serve another 100,000 kids. And we'll probably get into what the future looks like, but a big task for us moving forward is continuing to look for funding mechanisms so that we can make the full demand of the program, which in my estimation is probably north of 200,000 kids. That's amazing. I mean, back in 2003, you only had about 15,000 kids in the program. Now you're serving more than 100,000 and you've got more than 15,000 on the waiting list. The growth has been exponential. And one of the reasons for that is because you have a, I don't want to call it a unique feature because there's a few other states that have it, but you have an escalator clause. What is that? Every year that the program that we raise 90% of the cap, and the program is, is, is capped every year. But every year that we raise 90% of the cap in terms of tax credit contributions, the cap goes up 25%. And so that the numbers start to get big after a while. And so uh, the cap this year and for 2018 is $872 million. And if we get to 90% of that, then it would go up another 25%. I don't have the calculator in front of me, but that's that would be well over a billion dollars. Right. So anybody familiar with the miracle of compound interest understands <laughs> how that can very quickly grow. How, how many years have you hit the cap? We have hit the cap. We had a, we've had an escalator every year since the escalator was passed, and it was passed in 2010. So for the last eight years, we have had that 25% increase. Although I should say this year, I do not think we're going to hit the 90% threshold. This will be the first time ever, but 
we're going to raise probably about $680 million. That's not going to be 90% of 872, which is why we're talking intensely with the new governor and with our legislative leadership to look for new ways to fund the demand. And what is the average scholarship size? The average scholarship size this year is about $6,800. And you mentioned that the families that are participating on average for family four, they're earning about $25,000. But uh, what is the actual eligibility? Well, it's based on the free and reduced lunch program. So basically, 100% scholarship is 200% of poverty and below. You can get a 50% scholarship up to 260% of poverty and below. So we have a sliding scale. We got a lot of pushback from sort of working class families that said, you know, we just missed the cutoff, but, you know, we're a working class family and, you know, we need a little bit of help. So a couple of years ago, we put in a sliding scale so that from 200% to 260% of poverty, we'll still give you a scholarship, but it won't be a full scholarship. And really, uh, the law also requires us to prioritize the highest poverty kids. And so we've given very few of these partial scholarships because every year we have so much demand from the highest poverty families that really takes up almost all the money. Now, you mentioned going back from time to time and tweaking the program to make sure it's operating as efficiently and as fairly as possible. One of the things you've also done is change the program to allow certain categories of students to apply for a scholarship at any time throughout the year. So who are those students and why was that change made? Well, I guess the best example would be foster kids, you know, because the way the foster system works, you never quite know when a child's going to go into the foster system. And oftentimes that requires uh, them having a fairly radical change in their home environment. And, and sometimes it requires a significant change in their schooling environment. So we wanted to give those foster families as many tools as possible to help meet the needs of those children. And so we set aside money every year for foster kids who come in and out of the program throughout the school year. Again, it's a way to sort of acknowledge that foster kids face unusual challenges. We wanted to give those kids and and their foster families some tools to work with to help meet those kids' needs. And roughly how many students are participating that are foster your kids that applied outside of the normal window? We hold... On average, we hold about 500 spots per year for foster kids in that situation. I don't know off the top of my head how many of those positions are taken up every year, but on average, we, based on our projections, we anticipate having to find about 500 kids a year. And dependents of active duty military personnel are also given that leeway to apply any time during the year. And I guess for a similar reason, right? Because right. you never know when they're going to be deployed, when they're right. going to be sent to a base in Florida or something like that. Right. And you know, it's important for them to have that flexibility. Right. Before we get into the Gardner program, I wanted to mention one of the most recent programs in Florida is the HOPE Scholarship Program. So how does that work and what makes it different from the original tax credit scholarship program? Well, it's different a couple of ways. The qualifications for the HOPE Scholarship are kids who have been bullied in a district school. And so it's not means-tested but it's really focused on children feeling unsafe and needing a a safer environment. And so the legislature passed a new program called the HOPE Scholarship. It's also a tax credit funded program, but it's funded by the sales tax that individual consumers pay when they purchase an automobile. So it just turns out that I actually needed a car (laughs) this fall and the program became operational October 1st. So on October 1st, I went in and bought myself a little Honda Civic 
And when I uh, signed all the paperwork at the end, I signed a paper that redirected $105 of my sales tax to step up for students. $105 is the most I could donate or redirect. And so um, we have collected in the first month and a half about $3 million so far in sales tax that automobile purchasers have redirected to step up. And so the way this program works is families whose children have been bullied will file a piece of paper with the school principal saying, my kid's been bullied, principal does an investigation, and then how the investigation turns out, if the parent says, I still feel like my kid's been bullied, then they qualify for the HOPE scholarship. They send us the paperwork documenting the, the incident of being bullied, and then we notify the state, and the child now becomes eligible for that scholarship, and they can do two things for the scholarship. They can either take a scholarship to go to a private school, but they can get a scholarship for funding, for transportation funding to go to another public school. And actually, as a part of the original tax credit scholarship, they can use a portion of their funds for transportation as well, correct? That is correct. For the larger tax credit program, you can get your tuition fees at a private school paid, or you can get a $750 transportation scholarship to attend a school outside of your school district. As you know, Jason, in Florida, our school districts are all county systems. And they're huge. So if you want to attend a school in another school district, you might have to drive 30, 40, 50 miles. And so this would provide some financial support for low-income families that want to take advantage of that opportunity. Now, Florida is a pioneer when it comes to school choice. It was the third state to adopt a tax credit scholarship program after Arizona and Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania, it was the same year. And then it was the second state after Arizona to adopt an education savings account, which in Florida are known as Gardner Scholarships. So could you tell us a little bit about the Gardner Scholarship Program, which your organization also administers? Right. We actually have two educational savings accounts, but let me talk about the Gardner first. And if you'll let me, I'll talk about the second one. Absolutely. The Gardner Program is for kids with sort of deep end special needs. We like to call them unique abilities. It's named after former state Senate President Andy Gardner and his wife, Camille Gardner, who have a child with Down syndrome, I believe. And they've been amazing in terms of advocating on behalf of these children. And so the way the program works is a family, uh, and these are sort of deep end special needs or unique abilities, Down syndrome, spina bifida, autism. Most of the kids are on the autism spectrum. And there's there's like five or six other categories of various kinds of uh, challenges at families. Cerebral palsy and so on and so forth. Yeah. So they submit paperwork to us, usually from a doctor or another qualified professional certifying that the child qualifies for one of these categories. We notify the state and the state then forwards us money for the families to spend. Usually on average, it's about $10,000 for a Gardner scholarship. It goes into a family-specific bank account. And that family can then spend that money on state-authorized products and services. These could be occupational therapists, physical therapists, tutoring, might be services from a private school or a district school or a charter school. They also can purchase curriculum materials, books, educational software. They also can purchase hardware to support the uh, educational software. So it's really designed to give families the ability to customize a whole portfolio of learning opportunities for their children. As you know, kids with these kinds of challenges have very specific needs that have to be addressed. And so this gives families the spending flexibility they need to provide their children with a high-quality, customized education. So the program is very popular. We've got about uh, 12,000 kids on the program this year. 
and there's another 1,400 on a waiting list. So that also has an active waiting list, and that program has proved to be very popular. Right, and, and it was only about 1,500 students in the first year after it was enacted, so it's grown almost tenfold since 2015, which is an incredible amount of growth. Right. Now, how exactly do the families use these accounts? Walk us through the process. They apply to your organization, they're approved, and then what happens? So, as I mentioned, we notify the state. The state then forwards us money for each family that goes into an account just for that family. And when we first passed the program, the families had to spend out of pocket for these services, and then they would submit uh, receipts to us, and we would reimburse them. We're increasingly moving to a process where they'll be able to go onto an online platform, sort of like an Amazon type of platform, and they'll, they'll have products and services on that platform, catalogs of various services. They'll be able to purchase their services through the catalog, and then we'll direct pay. The goal here is to try to minimize parents having to pay out of pocket because a lot of families couldn't afford to pay out of pocket and wait for the reimbursement. It also allows us to control for fraud and inappropriate purchases because everything on the platform will be pre-approved. So we don't have to worry about having people purchase things that they thought was going to be approved and it turns out not to be approved or, you know, people purchasing things that, you know, really shouldn't be purchased. So we're spending millions of dollars on this platform. We're still building it out, but ultimately we'll have a one-stop shop platform for families so that all their purchases will be done online. We'll do all the invoicing for them. They'll have for things like technology, it'll be shipped to their house. They have a lot of things they're dealing with, Jason, when you have a child with spina bifida or Down syndrome or autism. So the more we can take burdens away from the families and make it as easy as possible for them to access the products and services they need for the children, the better it is for the families. So this platform that you're building, and I believe it's with SAP Ariba, is that correct? That's correct. That's the main platform that we've licensed, and we're doing a ton of customization to take a platform which was designed for the the private sector, a sort of an e-procurement platform, and customize it for the K-12 space. And this platform, as you mentioned, is going to improve the financial accountability to the taxpayer, making sure that all of the expenses are actually for approved categories of educational expenses. And it's also going to make it a lot easier for families to find educational products and services for their own child. But I believe there's another aspect of it that's also going to help families assess the value of these products. Is that correct? Yeah. As you know, when consumers make good choices, it's good for the consumer, but it's also good for the overall market because it sends signals to providers about what's working, what's not working. So we want to make sure these families have all the information they need to make as informed decision as possible. And so we are also building tools, data sets, data analytics that will allow families to get really good information on what their children need and also be able to look at various providers out there to get a sense of what provider might be the very best match for their particular child. This is going to be a long-term endeavor. I think, you know, you see a lot of other disciplines where they're starting to use sort of machine learning, artificial intelligence tools to help people make better decisions. We're going to go through that same path. And the idea, like I said, is to try to give families as many tools as possible, including good information about their child's development and also what possible choices they might make for their children that would be the best fit for where their child is at any one moment in their development. Well, that's fantastic. I very much look forward to seeing that online, so to speak. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about the litigation that the programs are still facing. But first, you mentioned that there is actually a fifth school choice program in the state. It's another ESA. What is that and how does that work? Yeah, this one's pretty interesting. It's a reading ESA, and it's only for kids who are enrolled in public schools, either a district school or a charter school. And it's for kids in grades three through five who are well behind in reading. And the idea is that the state legislature wanted to give these families a little extra money to spend on additional reading support for their children. So whether it's hiring after-school tutors or summer programs, again, families will have the ability to spend that money in a variety of different ways to customize additional reading support for their children. The fact that it's targeted only for kids in public schools, I think, is trying to create space where school districts won't see educational savings accounts and won't see other kinds of choice programs as a threat, but in fact, as an asset. And so it's been fun watching school districts, you know, look at this program and begin to embrace it to start creating their own after-school programs to help meet their children's needs. A lot of instances, you have teachers who are already doing a lot of after-school work for free. So it gives teachers a chance to get paid for some of the work that they're doing. It also allows teachers to be entrepreneurial because teachers can set up their own tutoring programs. And, and actually, because parents now have purchasing power, it allows teachers to be entrepreneurial, to create programs, and then have a direct financial relationship with the family so the families can pay them directly to help their kids get better support for reading. So we're pretty excited about it. This is a brand new program. I hope that it grows in future years, but it really begins to muddy the waters in terms of public versus private and all those very uninteresting debates. And really brings everybody together under an ed choice umbrella to figure out how do we provide children with the very best learning opportunities. And uh, so we're kind of excited about that program, too. And that, of course, you know, providing students with the very best learning opportunities should be the purpose of public education. Unfortunately, I think some people confuse public education with one particular delivery mechanism, which we traditionally call public schools. But the ESA program, tax credit scholarships, I think these are programs that really are not antithetical to public education, but are really an expansion of public education. And they're different means of fulfilling the true purpose of of public education, which is to ensure that every single child has access to a quality education and really to an education that's the right fit for each child. Unfortunately, though, that's not the way everybody sees things, and there still are some ongoing lawsuits against some of the school choice programs in the state. Why don't you walk us through the school choice lawsuits that are still being litigated? Well, the primary lawsuit in Florida actually has its genesis as an adequacy suit. As you know, we have a long history in the United States of adequacy suits where A group of citizens will sue the state, arguing that the state is not fulfilling its obligation to provide an adequate public education system, and basically they're looking for more money. In the Florida suit, not only are they looking for more money, but they're also saying that one of the reasons there's lack of money is because of programs like the Task Credit Scholarship and the McKay Scholarship. And so this particular lawsuit isn't just looking for more funds for district schools, but also is looking to wipe out the choice programs that allow children to attend schools or other kinds of learning opportunities outside of the control of the school district. 
So uh, that case was argued in front of the Florida Supreme Court on November 8th. And so we're waiting to hear what the Florida Supreme Court is going to do with that particular case. But that's the one major piece of litigation right now that's outstanding that really includes the choice programs as a target. And just to be clear, which choice programs are the targets of this lawsuit? The tax credit program and the McKay programs. But not the Gardner? No. Right. And the tax credit scholarship just survived another legal challenge. What was McCalvey Scott about? Yeah, we were sued by the state teachers union and I think the League of Women Voters, which is kind of a, basically a subsidiary of the State Teachers Union in Florida, we were sued in 2014, uh, arguing that the program was unconstitutional because it violated uniformity and blame. And that case went all the way to the Florida Supreme Court, and it was dismissed because the courts claimed that the uh, plaintiffs never had standing. As you know, you can't file suit against somebody unless you can have some minimum threshold of harm. And so in order to have standing in the suit, in order for the suit to have some sort of legitimacy, there has to be at least some possibility that you suffered harm and and you're looking for some redress for the harm that you suffered from. So this suit said public education is being harmed by these programs and therefore we want to rule them unconstitutional. And the judges at the trial and at the appellate level and at the Supreme Court level said, do you have any evidence that there's harm? And the plaintiff said, well, no, but we just think there is. And so because they had no evidence that there is harm, they didn't have standing. And so those cases were dismissed. Right. And actually, to the extent that there is any evidence, what is the evidence of the competitive effects of the program? Well, you know the answer to that, but I'll tell you anyway. (laughs) The effects are actually quite positive. Our friend David Figlio at Northwestern did a study, as you know, and and his colleagues, and found that those district schools that are most impacted by the task credit program, that is, large numbers of kids in those particular schools are actually leaving those schools and going on to the task credit program, the academic achievement as measured by state standardized test scores increases in those particular schools. And I think there's a couple of reasons. You mentioned competitive effects, and Dr. Figlio said, yeah, the competition from this program is causing the district schools to raise their game. You know, they're getting better because they're starting to lose kids onto the scholarship and they want to maintain market share, so they're getting better. Right. And that particular study, because there could be a confounding effect when the students actually start leaving, depending on who those students are, he looked at the year that it was enacted, but before any students moved, and found that there was actually a statistically significant positive effect, and that the effect was most concentrated around district schools where they had more private schools in the area. So they had more competition. Those schools saw greater improvements even before the program went into effect, but after it was enacted. So that's how he sort of measured the competitive effect. But uh, you were mentioned that there might be another explanation. Right. It, It turns out that Dr. Figlio has also found that we attract the highest poverty, lowest performing kids in the state. And so for a lot of schools, we significantly reduce their concentration of poverty. And as you know, poverty is probably the biggest challenge we face in public education. Those kids don't bring the same kind of social capital that other kids bring to the table. And so when you reduce the concentration of poverty in the school, it also has very positive effects. So I know you're getting a competition effect, but I'm sure in some schools, you're also getting a benefit of reducing concentrations of poverty 
which you know makes it easier for the schools to deal with the other kids. So there's probably two things going on in various ways of the competition effect and reducing concentrations of poverty. Right. And so one of the criticisms you often hear of school choice programs is that there's creaming that, you know, oh, the, the, the families that are most invested in education are going to take their students who are the best and brightest out of the system. The public school system is then going to have the hardest to teach students and less dollars to actually educate them. And, you know, these other students are going to go on, the so-called better students are going to go on to the private schools. But what the longitudinal studies from, I believe it's Florida State University that does the annual assessment these days, what they find is quite different than that. What is it that they find? Who are the students that are leaving the district schools and and what is their level of performance vis-a-vis students that are demographically similar? Well, like I mentioned before, both FSU and and Figueroa before them all found that the kids that come into the program tend to be the lowest performing kids in the schools in which they leave, the district schools in which they're attending. So we're doing the opposite of creaming. We're not taking the kids who are doing the best in those schools. We're taking the kids who are really struggling. And, you know, we do a lot of uh, spotlights of families on our blog, and the stories are almost always the same, Jason. You've read a lot of them. You know, kids struggling in school oftentimes has failed a couple of grades because they're so frustrated academically. They oftentimes are discipline problems. They're unmotivated. They're discouraged. They don't want to go to school anymore. The parents are really just pulling their hair out. What am I going to do with this child? It tends to be a real mess. And they get them on the scholarship, they get them into another environment. Oftentimes, the private schools are much smaller. A lot of them are faith-based schools. And so there's this this sort of loving community that embraces the child. Because the schools are smaller, they oftentimes are able to provide much more customized instruction and support systems. And we see all these turnaround stories. And so I think the stereotype and the accusations and the opponents are actually completely wrong simply giving families the opportunity to make a choice and to put their child in an environment that's more effective benefits the child. And it's really uh, taking children whose lives are really on a downward spiral and and helping turn them around. And these students who are demographically and socioeconomically in the sort of the lowest tier are then just after a few years performing at the national average, which are students that are demographically better off than they are. Right. Right. And the longer they are in the program, according to the Urban Institute study, the more likely they are to graduate from high school and go on to college. And they're doing those in higher numbers than their demographically similar peers who are in the district school system. Right. Yeah. The Urban Institute study, as you mentioned, showed that kids who are on the program four or more years are 40% more likely to go to college than a similar demographics uh, control group. So it's fairly impressive. And I really think the magic sauce is a lot of its choice. You know, we we all know the old saying of nobody ever washed a rental car before they returned it because they don't own it. And what I've seen over my 10 plus years as president of Step Up is that families in the choice programs have enormous amount of ownership over the choices they make. And once they have that sense of ownership, it changes a lot of things, changes motivation, changes you know, levels of grit and and determination and aspirations and hope, all kinds of wonderful things happen when people have a greater sense of ownership over their own education, their children's education. I think that's the magic sauce. It sounds like I'm reinventing the wheel because 
people have known this for a long, long time, but when you give people freedom, when you give them choice, and they have a greater sense of ownership, and they're more committed to making those choices effective. And certainly what you're saying is consistent with the survey of the scholarship students that we recently conducted. You can find that on the EdChoice website. It's called Surveying Florida Scholarship Families. And it finds not only uh, you know, more than 90% uh, satisfaction with the program and with their chosen schools, but also finds that families say they were much more likely to help their child with their math homework, read with their child, communicate with their child's teacher, and so on, and be involved in school activities once they were participating in the program relative to the school that they were attending before the program. So I I think there's definitely a lot of empirical evidence to support your claim that ownership has a lot to do with the improvement. And I think also, going back to the story you were telling, it has to do with the right fit. These students that are leaving the district schools are the lower-performing students, not necessarily because they're not as intelligent or they're just bad students or not motivated, but which is not obviously the case that you were making, but they're just not in a school that's the right fit for them. And because you have this mismatch, they're not performing well. And it's the students that are not performing well whose parents are more likely to say, hey, you know what, we got to move my child to another environment. If they're in that environment and they're thriving and they're getting good grades, the parents are generally say, okay, you know, this is a, a free education and my student's doing well, I'm going to leave them there. But uh, if she's being bullied, if she's struggling, if the classes just aren't speaking to her, then it's time to move. And once this parent is able to find the environment that's the right fit, then their child can really thrive. And so the whole system ends up doing better because each individual child has access to an environment that's a better fit. Yeah, I like to think about it's the match that's the key. You know, we talk about failing kids. We talk about failing schools. The reality is that Harvard fails for lots of kids. For some students, Harvard is a failing school because it's not a good match. And so the match is really the key thing. Some kids do really well in big schools. Some kids need a small school. Some kids do great in a secular school. Some kids need a faith-based school. Some kids do in a great in a Montessori school. Some kids need a back-to-basics you know, school. It really is about matching the child to the learning environment that best meets their needs. And that's the key. By the way, Jason, you and your colleagues have done great research on the Florida program, and I appreciate that. This is anecdotal. But the other thing that I love about the whole notion of choice and ownership and hope is the effect it has on the entire family. You know, Jack Coons has been writing about this for, you know, 60 plus years. But um, and a lot on your blog. And a lot on our blog in the late 80s. He's in the late 80s and still is prolific. He's an amazing guy. But I wish I had a dollar for every time I talked to a grandmother who said, you know what? I never graduated from high school. My grandchild got on the scholarship. My grandchild is so excited to go to school now. I've seen this amazing turnaround. I've been so inspired by my grandchild that I'm now going back and working on my GED. I mean, I've heard that story over and over again. And that, that, that just, I mean, I get goosebumps every time I say it because it's, it's so powerful to see the effect of the entire family ecosystem. You know, when, when there really is a sense of we can break the cycle of generational poverty. You know, we can actually have hope that this whole thing can change. And it's infectious. You know, it's sort of like despair is infectious, but hope is also infectious. And watching hope spread through a family and watch it transform the entire family is probably the most rewarding part of this work. 
My guest today has been Doug Tuthill, president of Step Up for Student Scholarship Organization. Doug, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. You've been listening to another edition of Ed Choice Chats. Remember, you can subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on social media at EdChoice and sign up for our email on our website, edchoice.org. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Yeah.